Hey there, and welcome to Dirt Rich, seasonal conversations about food and farming. Today we're going to do things a little bit different, uh, have a little different structure if it works. Maybe we'll try it again. If it doesn't, well, you'll probably never, <laughs> I'll scrap the idea and you'll never hear this anyway. But uh, today I'm joined by my fellow SFA teammates, uh, Kent Solberg, who's our senior technical advisor, Doug Voss, our grazing lead, and Jonathan Kilpatrick, who's our soil health associate, and myself. And we're going to have a conversation kind of around what's on our mind today regarding agriculture and soil health. And well, we'll just see, I guess, where the conversation takes us. But we uh, we kind of had a short conversation before this just to see kind of some of the things that were on our minds and a common trend that came up with a couple of us that we were talking about is this, you know, this conversation around input costs, you know, and, and Doug, you hit it on the head, you know, things have been good and times are good, but that I think everybody's got a little bit of a fear maybe that you know, if, if prices come down and input costs stay up, where does that leave farmers? <laughs> I don't know if you want to share a little bit about what you were thinking with that. And Well, for sure. You know, <clears throat> yeah, we got good, we have good commodity prices right now, but how much of that check coming in is going for the inputs and, and is it looking to change? And, you know, we look at where trends go and, and oftentimes we can raise the prices for things, but yet the input costs will stay up even if the commodity prices go down. So it kind of gives you a, a a point and especially closing out the season here with harvest for the most part in uh, November here in Minnesota that we've got a lot of the crops harvested so we kind of know where we're at with production for the year and it gives us a good you know opportunity to evaluate what's happened in the last year but then where do we want to go um, are, are we taking steps in our operation to lessen the dependency on the inputs or do we even understand the natural processes have been going on for a long time for whichever nutrient you want to address and you know we can look to have less of a dependency or even rid ourselves of some of those inputs if we're really choosing to so identifying what goals we could have i think is important as we have a you know point in time to in perspective to look at how things are going and where we want to be i think the danger you know when commodity prices are high there's always this danger and i've seen it many many times over many many decades we we as farmers tend to get lax in our management and thinking about our management and it's easy to do. You think you got a lot of wiggle room and we get more wrapped around the axle when commodity prices are low. And you know, I, I think we got to still keep that sharp pencil. We got to know what the costs are in order to maintain that bottom line. And, and as Doug's saying, taking advantage, now's the time really to start turning your system, turning your management system around or, or in a different direction, if you will, to take advantage of the natural nutrients that are out there and available. We just have to make them plant available. And we do that through biology, whether it's synthetics mm -hmm. or what's inherent in the geology of the soil, it's making it available through biology. And we can't just go cold Turkey. If we've mm -hmm. got a field that's been, you know, 30 plus years, commodity corn and beans, you it's, it's, it's like cutting off the supply line to a drug addict. Their body physiologically is not ready to handle that. There needs to be a weaning process. And if we can be thoughtful when commodity prices are high and, and you may not be able to do the whole farm and that's fine, you know, pick a field, pick a couple fields and start, but start working towards building that biology in order to access those nutrients that are there. You know, we, we take a lot of soil samples uh, and, and do analysis with Haney PLFA and total nutrient digestion or TND. And we have yet to find a field 
through TND that shows a deficiency, quote unquote, in any of these nutrients that we're applying. It's just that they're not bio, they're not plant available because the biology is not there, and that's supported through the data we see in the Haney and the PLFA tests from the same field. And so, by rebuilding that biology, we can ex- access the P, the K, the sulfur, the boron, the manganese, whatever you know uh, we feel we need in that field. And it's not going to come overnight. We've got to rebuild that system. And we can do it thoughtfully, we can do it carefully, and we do it through the principles of soil health is how we do it. Recreating that home or that habitat for that biology so we can access that and being less dependent. Our standard NPK test is really just telling us what's plant available. It's not a telling us what's present in the soil, it's telling us what's potentially plant available there. And so we want to make it plant available, but we have to do that through one of two ways either biology or over-application. And then the response to that over-application, of course, there's nothing good that comes from that because as we degrade our soil health, we have less retention of those nutrients. And so that's going down in the watershed. And of course, we know what what's going on with the dead zone. It just contributes, right? Or blowing away, uh, especially this time of year when we don't have snow cover or moisture. You know, we're losing soil. When that wind whips up like it did here uh, last weekend, uh, so bad, Across most of the state, uh, there we were talking just before we get got recording here about the amount of uh, erosion loss. What's leaving that field? It's the fine particles in that field. Well, what's bound to those fine particles? P, K, salt, you know, all of those things that we're paying money to put on. And that's our dollars blowing away. And, and not, not a week, not even a week before that. You know, at least three of us here were observing fields where they were going 24-7 all night long, and they're doing a bunch of things, but one of the things that often gets done in the fall is applying P and K. And the wind comes up, and you're gonna, you're, there's going to be losses there. There's no doubt about it. We, you know, we jokingly say, well, we'll just pick up what, what's going to come from the neighbor's field. will blow onto mine, and mine will blow onto my neighbor's, and we're all working together. And yet we know that's a fallacy. You know, these fines get up in the atmosphere, and a lot of times they're getting dumped, quite frankly, into the Atlantic Ocean. We've known that since the 30s. That's nothing new. That's that's nothing that's changed. And so, you know, uh, yeah, commodity prices are high, um, but can we truly afford to be losing those nutrients? And can we truly afford, if we want to be profitable long-term, can we truly afford not to take advantage of the natural fertility that exists in the soil? It's just not biologically available. This might be kind of a dumb question or a thought here, but I'm, I'm wondering on that conversation of, you know, catching your neighbor's soil and stuff like that. I think of in our farm, we have fence lines all over the place and usually the fence lines are taller than the fields. And I wonder, is part mm-hmm. of that erosion and part of that soil capture from blowing yes. into the tall grass? And, and can we kind of almost, I mean, actually catch our neighbor's fields if we have... <laughs> Covers, you know, well, cover, yeah. covers and forages. To some degree, you will. But again, the fines go so high up in the atmosphere. Sure. People talk about the sky actually looking brown. Yeah. And I, you know, I think I think we can all testify to seeing. And, and I think if we're all honest in ag country in Minnesota and in the Dakotas and Iowa, you know, we've seen those clouds uh, or mm. they act, even on a clear day, you can see that brown hue in the sky and that's the fines in the soil and it's not going to just settle on your field or whatever that's that's up in the atmosphere quite a ways yeah. that's going to travel a long long way but as far as the fence line saying there's several things going on there you hit on two of them 
you know, one of them is, is erosion off the adjoining field. The second thing that's going on there, I believe, is, is just capture in the grasses and vegetation that's there. You're capturing some of what's blowing. And the third thing is, is several of the soil health principles are being implemented right there in that fence line. You know, we've got a living root in the soil. Uh, we've got armor on the soil. Uh, we, we've got biology. We may even have some animal impact from deer or rabbits or whatever grazing on that too, you know, uh, and we're minimizing disturbance there. We're not disturbing that site as much as we are the adjoining field. And so we're actually building soil on those sites. If you poke a shovel in the ground there, oftentimes that's richer, richer and deeper. And we'll often use those sites as benchmark sites to compare against a field uh, that's mm-hmm. on what's going on there. Like, for example, a ring infiltrometer can be 10, 15, 20 times better water infiltration in that fence row or in that shelter belt uh, than it is, you know, 50 yards out into that field. And, and that's because more of the principles uh, creating that home or that habitat for the soil biology are being implemented. I think we have to have to think of one other thing too, as we're talking about the good things that are leaving fields and landing in other fields, but it's not just the good things that are being transported. I mean, we've got, we've got herbicide residuals and those types of things that are going along with that too. So, uh, you know, <laughs> which of the farms that are blowing the ones that are being tilled, which are the ones that have high synthetic use typically are the ones that are going to be blowing. So, uh, you know, just to think of it as all good blowing around, I think is, is a mistake as well. Certified organic has a 25 foot buffer that should catch it. That right? I mean, nothing passes the buffer strip. I'm pretty sure. So. Nothing. Absolutely <laughs> nothing. Yeah. What a can of worms, Jerry. Thanks for that one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sometimes the whole farm isn't enough of a buffer. So that's right. Yeah, for sure. So I've got a question going back to you're talking about the pricing. Um, you know, high commodity prices. Is that an opportunity? Because I think what I'm hearing you're saying. Kent, is there's an opportunity when commodity prices are high to start implementing a low input system because you can take advantage of a higher margin. Correct. Um, that you can have a little bit more tolerance for potential lower yields the following year or a couple of years. Or, or just there's there's a learning curve to everything. And you know, when we're working one-on-one with farmers, when we're consulting with farmers, we work really hard to take a lot of the risk out of transferring to a more soil health focused system because it is something new and, and we can take a lot of that risk out, but we still don't control the weather. There's still things we don't control. Um, and a lot of people aren't getting the coaching, you know, to help them. They're just, they're, they're sort of taking a stab at it based on listening to a few podcasts, reading a few articles, maybe they've been to a workshop or two, and that's great. You know, that's part of the learning, but you know, we always encourage people to start small and it's easiest to start small and make those make those changes when you feel most comfortable with your margins. And again, it doesn't have to be the whole farm. It can be a whole, one field, part of a field, part of the farm. Everybody's everybody's tolerance risk tolerance is different, and we've got to match that you know match that up to make sure people are comfortable. But it's it's you know we know throughout economic history. Uh, in the last 50 plus years that, you know, you'll hear people say, if you're going to make changes to no matter what you're doing, if you're going to make changes, do it when you've got the financial cushion to do it. Uh, Unfortunately, as humans, what we do, and I'm not just picking on farmers here, we see it all over. People tend to go off the deep end, you know, when they've got a little financial cushion 
and 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 they tend to spend money on things that aren't necessities or maybe not even important to the business or important to their financial well-being. They're not squirreling money away. We know that from watching uh, personal spending habits in this country over the last 30, 40 years. Uh, they're not doing that in general. They tend to go out and buy more toys and more gugas and whatever. And so, um, but it, it is, I mean, that's just sound financial advice is when you have that cushion, you start reinvesting in some sort of change. And if, if you can apply the principles that build the biology that help you access nutrients that are inherent on your farm and, and not just, not just what's in the soil, but even the 32,000 tons of atmospheric nitrogen over every acre of your farm. Are you accessing that, you know, and, and to its full capacity. And so it's, it's the time to do things. It's the time to make that change. And unfortunately, some farms have to use, you know, the, the good times to play catch up from the bad times. And, and that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a difficult thing. But again, if, if you can even set aside a few acres, part of it and learn and grow from that, it can pay big dividends in the future. Yeah. I know Gabe Brown likes to say most farmers haven't been broke enough to have to change. It's unfortunate that people even have to get that broke to have to make a change where you can't afford fertilizer, but let's, let's take an opportunity when your margins are good to make the change and you have financial cushion to, to underneath. It as, as, as Dave Pratt at Ranching for Profit used to say, you know, we're the only species that doesn't want to change until our back's against the wall. You know, everybody gets gives out the advice to make the change when things are good. But as humans, our, our nature is that we refuse to do it until we feel like we're desperate. Well, and that's where I've always seen it seems like the philosophy seems like the philosophy of people in tough times anyway, is that you know, the margins are so slim and they can't afford to make a change that's so uncertain. And that, you know, they talk about this two or three year transition to soil health where you may see yield drag or things. And maybe that's worth talking about as if that's a, is that a myth or is that a reality? But they have this philosophy, you know, that there's some sort of a yield drag and in tough times they can't afford to take that. And then, and then in good times, well, they got to capture yeah, every dollar, there's no need to change, you know, times are good. They're, they're rolling, rolling in it. And so it's a, a lot of it is a, a mental, uh, you know, philosophy, a philosophical change. And, you know, people, I guess, listening, if you haven't made the change, maybe got to ask yourself, have I found myself in one of those positions where I don't feel a need to change because times are good or when times are tough, you, you don't feel it's the right time because times are tough. And at some point you just have to make the decision. If it's, if it is in fact a decision you, you want to make. Well, since we're, since we're quoting other people, we could quote our own Doug Voss, who says most of these issues are social issues. So, soil health is a social issue. You know, the thing is, is that I don't know about you guys, but I've got a limited amount of energy in every day, and I, I really have to keep myself accountable. And how how am I spending my energy? Am I looking for excuses to do with what things I have to do re reactively, or because I think that I need to do them, or what am I looking for? You know, uh, what am I focusing on? Am I looking mm -hmm. for ways to improve things, or, or new opportunities I haven't discovered before, or a new perspective in which to look at things? I'm constantly looking at that, and I don't think you'll talk to anybody in the soil health movement that doesn't reevaluate things constantly based on the foundation that we talk about. And so when we talk about all these in intricate details of our particular context and everything else, and you, you know, it still comes back to that foundation. And um, then you at least have a platform in which to evaluate things. And, you know, we're talking about 
safe to fail trials. I love that terminology. And, you know, like Kent said, you're going to take a portion of the, of your farm and you're going to prove for yourself in the, under those conditions, whether or not a management change was a good one or bad one. And yes, that doesn't mean the conditions are going to be the same every year, whether it's going to be as successful or not successful every year, but you're at least going to have something to go upon. So whether or not you're looking at fertilizer or, or, you know, management practices, or even using a different product, you know, I, I, I certainly won't name the product, but we we had one that I thought looked awful attractive this last year when we gave it a try. We picked four different pl places on the farm and we did hand applications of this liquid product. And we took um, brick readings of those exact spots in time later. And every one of them were less than when we where we applied. So the product actually reduced the quality of the forages that we were growing on our farm. Now, if we would have decided that that was the thing to do based on all the, the data and everything that we saw before, we would have applied it to the whole farm and it would have been a double-edged sword because not only would have had the, the product cost, the application cost, but then if I would have had half the forage quality as well, I mean, what, what a train wreck. So we're, uh, you know, we're busy listening to all these folks that have all this information that are usually selling products and we're not justifying its use on our own farms. And so I think if we did that more, uh, again, looking at things from a different perspective, we'd have a different conversation. Yeah. 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 And that's, that's a good example related to those. I, I think of another one that brought to my mind of a, of a feed salesman who was kind of putting together a, a, a thing on a, on supplemental feed or on a creep feed. And it talked about, you know, how this X amount of pounds gained will result in X amount of dollars per calf and, um, and how you make X amount of dollars by doing that. And well, when you look at the sheet, you didn't realize that they didn't account at all for any sort of price slide that the higher weighing calves typically sell for less per pound. And when you include that, it was a break even at best. And so maybe that's something we need to be thinking about is where are we getting our information and where are we seeking out our, you know, our, our education and, and things and what's the motivation of those people who are trying to help us and teach us. And, and, you know, I think that's important. And unfortunately it seems like most people are looking for their education and the people who are the most financially uh, invested in you following a certain plan or a certain purchasing a certain product and that's questionable at best so so in that conversation jared i think it's important for people to really consider their their approach to that because i would love to ask questions in those situations you know well if you if you ask questions in those conversations we're not accusative we're not um convictive we're just simply you know getting establishing a position that we're looking for answers right and I think that could make a difference sometimes when we're collectively looking for solutions as opposed to being critical of each other with our approaches. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's what I did is in that particular situation, I sent him an email asking, you know, am I wrong or am I right in this? You know, like it would be, I don't know, like kind of just trying to get more information. And, but, you know, I, I think a lot of people should look just, I, I don't know. I think there's something about a, a uh, not a confrontational mind, but a questioning mind, you know, always looking for why and, and asking why am I doing this? Does it make sense? Or is it because it's how many things that we do have we done because we've always done it? I, I mean, the, there's the story. I don't remember where I heard it. It was from one of you or not, but the, whatever the woman who always cuts the corner of the ham off. And uh, have you heard that story? Something along those lines where the woman yeah. for the, 
Christmas yeah. ham or whatever always cuts the corner of the ham off. And the daughter was like, well, why do you do that? And she's like, that's a good question. You know, I don't remember. And she asked her mom who asked her mom and down the road, she found out, well, that the great, great grandmother's pan wasn't big enough to fit the whole ham. So she always cut the corner of the ham off. And so every year since they've been cutting this corner of the ham off because that's what their family has always done. And it's uh, probably, you know, not, not the most uncommon in agriculture either. You know, I think it's also important to understand that reason and logic are still a part of this conversation. And we often talk about, well, you know, <laughs> the example you gave before with, with the nutrient, whether it's P or K or whatever it was, but, you, you know, why, how is this? And I thought we were always using all these nutrients and are we actually cycling these nutrients, you know, as part of that equation. But, you know, le reason and logic still has a place in this and it's not all fictitious it's not all you know throwing darts against a dartboard and hoping a few land in the right places and so you know we're looking at trends you know are we are we trending where we want to go or are we looking looking the other way um again i think it's a perspective thing and we need to be defining the context of the site uh, a big part of reducing the risk is truly understanding the context and we only get there by asking questions and sometimes it's hard questions but if information's left out and, and a lot of times it's just unintentional. People haven't thought about it. But if information's left out, we can make a bad management decision. And, and this is, you know, Jared, you brought up this idea of two to three years worth of yield drag. Uh, what I see is a lot of times people haven't fully defined their context. They haven't identified what's going on. They're doing something because they heard something was good or thought that something was quote unquote good. And they haven't fully thought it all through yet. And, and that's where we run into some problems. And that does, not to say that weather can't play a part in that. It certainly does. And there's a learning curve with any new tool or technique. You know, I talk to a lot of people who buy a new planter and struggle with, you know, getting plant population where they want it to the first year because they're just learning how to use that new tool or getting that combine to work right or whatever you know, the baler to work right. It doesn't matter. There's there's always a learning curve to a new tool, whether that's got, you know, steel and an internal combustion engine tied to it, or it's a seed or whatever. Um, there's a learning curve. You have to learn how to do it in your context, but defining that context goes a long way in making sure we're making good management decisions. You know, if you, if you think about it, we took a factory that was very productive decades ago, and I'm talking about the soil. Right. And, and we decided we were going to fire all the employees and we were going to outsource all that. And then one day we turn around and we figure out that maybe that wasn't the best move. Maybe we were more effective by using things in house and doing some of that business. Do you think it's going to take a little time to get that factory up and running again? Or do you think it's going to happen with the drop of a hat? And so you talk about yield drag and, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, turning that big ship around, right, Kent, that we, you know, whether you're nimble or not, but yeah, there's systems that we're dealing with here. You need quorum numbers of microbes to make these systems and these processes work again. And so, yeah, I mean, it's a process to get things turned around again. And so there's updates, uh, all kinds of things that you're going to consider, but, you know, just from a factory and a, and a workings perspective, there has to be some of that change. It's not all going to be smooth and easy, and it's not all going to be predictable. So talk about that factory. Um, so you talked about hiring those, those workers back, and it seems to me there's a trend to, you know, buy your bugs in a jug, and maybe this is the quick way to get your factory back. So talk, talk about that a little bit and why that's not the long-term solution, why you need to, like, 
you know, work on building the actual biology back. So we, we have to be looking at the hospitality department, right? We, we have to be in the hospitality department when we're looking at our soils. So not only do we have to have an environment that's conducive for these microbes to inhabit, but we also have, a, have to have a food for them. And so oftentimes we think we want to put something out there and are we creating, are we looking to create another dependency, I guess is what we're looking at. You know, we have to evaluate whether this is a stepping stone to get us to someplace we want to be, or is it, we're just trying to substitute one product for another. Um, so looking at that environment, you know, that's why we look at, we evaluate soils from a, a multiple of perspectives. You know, Kent always says, we're not going to decide we're going to amputate your left arm because your blood pressure is high one day. You know, we've got to look at things from a multiple of perspectives. But again, what's your goal? Where are you looking to go? And again, so even if you have all the workers in your plant and you've got a, a, a you know, if you, well, let's just take mycorrhizal fungi, you know, there's a worker for you, right? But you've got all kinds of surplus P and K, there's still not a job for them to do necessarily. And it's certainly not going to happen if you don't have a living root there, right? You're still going to have the spore form and that micro and that mycorrhizal fungi spore, just like you had before, if you don't have a living root. So uh, we have to look at from a multiple perspectives. And again, what's your goal? Are you looking to rid yourself altogether? And, and quite honestly, I feel if you are effective at addressing as many of the soil health practices and pr um, principles that we talk about, I, I don't, I think we could probably move much faster Yes, we have to be careful with how we approach, but, you know, if you decide where you want to go and you're going to understand that you're not going to ask, you know, are you setting your system up to be so dependent and the margins so narrow that you don't have some forgiveness like we talked about before? Or are you going to start from the beginning if you can, all right, if you're looking at a new piece of property or whatever, I mean, how much are you really asking of that piece of property to return for you? Uh, I think we're, you know, our margins, we've been so trained to look at our margins being so narrow because we've been trending that direction, right? Uh, we have inefficient systems because we are trying to think we have to bring all this material in to get the product out. I mean, if it was a one-to-one -one or a one-to-five return on your investment, who do you, you know, do we know anybody that's, that would be holding back, you know, if, if every dollar we put in was really going to bring the return that we think that we're supposed to have with these systems, uh, sometimes the more we get out of the way, the better the system operates because, you know, unfortunately we're the ones that got it to the point that it is right. Um, but what are we asking of our situation? You know, what are our margins? But yeah, there is a, an incredible amount of forgiveness when commodity prices are high to look at making some of these changes again, where are our trends going, but yes, um, consider some of these products. But again, I would, I would highly recommend people really evaluate a product on your own farm. And you are saying, well, I'm a whole year out. If I do that, well, <laughs> It's a common risk assessment. I mean, risk assessment can be hap. You know, we can we can still take a risk assessment on our operation, even though we're dealing with natural systems. Oftentimes, we make excuses again. Well, we don't know what the weather is going to be like. We don't know what the prices are going to be. We don't know if we can get product in the spring. On and on. But well, <laughs> that doesn't that just exasperate or exaggerate the situation. I, I guess I think so. And again, you know, where are we looking to go? Do we even know where we want to go? Doug talked about, you know, we have to be in the hospitality business, creating an environment, a home, an opportunity, something that's uh, amenable to all these microbes. But if we're buying microbes in, how do we know they're the ones we want? How do we know they're the ones we need? And if we're not prepared to create a, a habitable place for them, are they even going to stick around? And so we want to be a little careful there. So many of these are kind of generic. I mean, we have hundreds of species of just mycorrhizal fungi, hundreds. 
you know, there's different species connected with different plants. What if that plant isn't growing there and we bring in a mycorrhizal species that's not associated with that plant? We just wasted our money, you know? Um, now, there are some, there is some evidence showing, you know, mo- well, let me back up. Most of these microbes are coming in some sort of humic acid formulation, you know, carrier or whatever to keep them in. And there is some evidence that humic acid can help kickstart the system, okay? And that's a whole lot cheaper to buy and try. And I'm going to say buy and try because we want to do our own in-field trials like Doug was talking about. A lot cheaper to do that than with some other things thrown in there that may or may not be what we need in our system. So, and I just, another comment about these trials, we need to be honest and fair. You know, the temptation is, as we load up the, the whatever piece of equipment we're using to apply and we don't feel we did a good job unless we apply it to the whole field because we got in trouble when we were 15, you know, out there with the spreader and there were skips out there. And we remember that lesson and we remember it well. And so we're be, we've been trained to intentionally not create skips, but we do have to intentionally, we'll just say create skips or test trips as we will, because that's how we're going to learn. I mean, how much innovation over the course of human history has been because there was some error, something got missed, something got left behind and somebody went in and, oh, what's going on here? This is different. You know, we can create that, those things intentionally. And by doing so, we're going to learn a whole lot more. And if you've got a lot of variability in your soils across your farm, say you're sandy on one end and clay or silt or whatever on the other end, or if you're dealing with, you know, gravel, <clears throat> gravel ridges or floodplain river bottoms, these things are going to behave different in different in different fields. And so, you know, we've got to be fair. Uh, and, you know, we're always looking for that one size fits all silver bullet magic fairy dust approach to almost everything we do in life. That's just part of Western culture and where we live. And that doesn't work. Uh, The biological system is just too complex. Our farms are too complex, but we can be thoughtful and intentional about this and do some really, really powerful stuff. If we just take the time to think it through. Yeah. I've done some trials in the past on stuff like that. And it's, you know, you take a couple acres and kind of stake it out and like, okay, I'm going to try X product right here to see if we grow more grass or whatever. And, you know, I've done several of those over the years and it always comes back. It's like, well, that was money kind of just wasted because I got the biggest return on my investment for just upping my stock density or feeding out some hay in a certain area or a couple management tweaks give me far more return as far as forage grown or something than the time spreading it and so there's a few things that I've found that, you know, maybe have worked, but not enough to like really pay back. <laughs> so I'm, I'm so glad you used the management word in there, Jonathan, because quite honestly, most of addressing the soil health principles is just about changing our management. And, and we can move the needle so far just by changing our behavior, our management, how we run our farm and not just defaulting to what we've done in the past and trying to buy our way, you know, out of our problems, using our purchasing power to do that. That, that, that could be something very difficult to do in the future for a whole bunch of reasons, including supply chain. We could talk about supply chain disruptions for a long time here. If we're not aware of that, we're not paying attention. And there's a whole bunch of those things going on. What if it's not even available? What if we are dependent upon our management 
to continue to be profitable and stay in operation. And, and right. now's the time to learn those things. Well, and it kind of reflects back on yourself too, as the manager, because it's tempting to buy your way out of an issue when the person causing the issue is looking at you in the mirror in the morning and you're like, well, that's on my shoulders. Like I can fix it if I have the, you know, if I have the guts to go out and do it, you know? So, and I've seen that many times, like mistakes I've made, like, whoop, there's a whoopsie, but you're not going to buy myself out of this one. I just got to change my management in the future and lo and behold, it works. So uh, yeah, there's a lot to think through on those. And that requires, you know, it requires, you know, boots on the ground, eyes looking down, not just scanning from the road through the pickup windshield or, you know, (laughs) cruising by, you know, cruising by on the hay machine or whatever. We've got to get out and look around. We've got to be poking around in the, in, in, in the soil. And, and, you know, as for those who have been to our workshops, we really encourage carrying a shovel in the UTV or the pickup or whatever, because you can learn so much just poking a shovel in the ground and then going over to that fence row or going over to that field edge and poking a shovel in the ground again in a similar soil type. Are you mimicking what's there? Are you seeing what's there? Is the soil functioning the same way? Uh, And that, that's, that's how we get to really think about our management. It's not just, does it look nice from the road, but what else is going on out there? And that's, that's a big part of the assessments that we teach at our, at our programming. Well, it brings me back. And I, I remember when I it was a, gosh, to be a sophomore in college, I got an internship at the a local co-op as an agronomy intern. And it having grown up on an organic crop farm where my dad was largely the head, well, he had to think a lot more intentionally because of the lack of tools, you know, to, to do, to raise crops. He had to think a lot about, you know, he was thinking four, five, six years out on crop rotations and when and where different, you know, when he would integrate livestock and cover crops and when he would use perennials and all these different things and stuff. And then going to that co-op, and, and I know this is, you know, not a it, entirely true and it's not intended to offend or anything, but I was amazed by how many questions are answered just by calling the co-op and how, you know, how a lot of these management decisions are taken off the shoulders of farmers. And you know, I mean, you talk about getting, just being more intentional with your management and thinking more independently, I guess, and kind of goes back to that conversation earlier about not looking to the people selling you stuff for your, your advice. I mean, a lot of these things can just be simple, you know, kind of almost pretty clear too. I mean, when you, when you sit down and actually evaluate the numbers and be intentional about your management decisions and whatnot, but I think, uh, I don't know. And this is kind of, on my mind too, that's sort of relevant to this anyway, is, you know, how can farmers specifically smaller farmers compete with a lot of the large scale farmers and operators that are are out there. Um, And I I think that, you know, these are examples that on imagine a 10,000 acre farm or whatever, with all these different employees running around and they have systems in place. It's so systematized that they're like, you know, to try and change and to try and do some of these things. Well, it's certainly possible and, and should be, you know, encouraged is going to be more difficult. It's like turning the Titanic versus, you know, a small farm, you know, a few hundred acres, 500 acres, you know, a thousand, couple thousand acres even or something. It's like, uh, you know, a speedboat, you know, versus <laughs> we can, we can adapt quickly and change things quickly and, and simple changes. I mean, you can go as far as Gabe Brown, who's really gotten his soils functioning and has completely eliminated all synthetic fertilizers for the last, what, 14 years or something like that. I mean, it, you know, I think the average 
fertilizer bill on the UFM crop budget is 180 bucks. Imagine if you could cut it by 50%, you know, save $90 an acre. And imagine if you could get rid of your whole line of tillage equipment and your big horsepower tractor and all the labor required and the fuel required to go into that, save another 50, 75 bucks an acre. You know, stack that 165 bucks an acre on top of the average $100 an acre profit. And I mean, you've over doubled your profit per acre, you know, compared to some of these big guys, because you have the ability to think critically and change your operation. And I mean, this is the very kind of thing from a financial standpoint that can allow us as smaller operators to, to compete with, with the large ones. And, and that, and, and I don't want to say that this isn't possible for large farmers and operators, and in fact, I encourage it. And that's the exciting thing is that this is this is scalable and this is, we do have the ability to change landscape at scale. But, you know, you know, farmers focusing on focusing on soil health and, and these principles can really inc- improve the profitability. And at the end of the day, if it's not a, a decision that improves profitability, then it's probably not going to scale or it's not going to change. It, it, the industry is not going to change if it doesn't make financial sense. And, and this can and this does. Jared, you brought up a couple of very interesting things about being nimble. Um, You know, one of the things when we're coaching farms, I like to help them identify is is what uh, some would call their unfair advantage. Mm -hmm. And and being smaller, and and smaller is kind of a relative term, you know, these days. I mean, a small dairy is under a thousand cows uh, in in today's terms. So, you know, it's kind of a relative term. Um, but being smaller, you, you generally are more nimble if, if the mindset is there to make it happen. And again, getting back to just tweaking management goes a long way. These big operations, um, there are certain things that have to happen at a certain schedule and sometimes on a daily, on a 24-hour basis. And if they don't happen, that whole system's in a world of hurt. And there's very, it's, 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 yes, it's possible to scale this but it's harder because of all these moving parts that have to happen on a timely basis to keep things moving forward. And so there's very little wiggle room in the system to do that. Where a smaller operation, there can be, and it can, you know, we the changes do need to be incremental. You need to get comfortable with the change, but identifying those unfair advantages, being small is one of them, being nimble. You know, some other ones we have in Minnesota is, you know, we get five months of free concrete in the winter, you know, <laughs> that's, that's a huge one. We can use winter kill, you know, as a termination method on cover crops. That's another one. Bang, bang, bang. There's three right there. Usually we get on a farm and we hear, you know, one excuse after another. Well, I can't because I'm North of I-80 or I can't because, you know, I'm on sand or I can't because I'm river bottom or whatever, you know, or my, my soils are too steep or, or my slopes are too steep. Excuse me. Yeah. You know, but let's, let's talk about the things that are your advantage, your quote unfair advantage uh, that we can leverage and help your farm profitability. So we spend a lot of time, you know, for looking at, you know, balancing soils and we're evaluating soils with soil tests and that type of thing. I guess I just propose a different perspective. I think it's important to constantly be looking at different perspectives in which to look at your operation. And and there's some necessary ingredients that I jotted down as we were discussing today that I'd like to just kind of pose. And, and one of those is humility. From a management press perspective, I think humility is oftentimes an understated, you know, thing. We need to have it right and and accountability 
you know, Jared mentioned you're, we're making the calls to see what we should put on the fields this year. What do we need to, to make this work for us? And well, and quite honestly, sometimes we're doing that because that if it doesn't work, well, then we think we have somebody to blame, right? So we're not looking in the mirror for those answers and holding ourselves accountable. But then the other thing is, is that, you know, we're making, you know, mentioning some quotes before. And the one that I, I love and I come back to often is whether you think you think you can or you, whether you think you can't, you're right. And so, you know, yeah, maybe you don't have the tools or the understanding today to get where you want to be tomorrow, but, you know, are you focused on finding answers that you don't have today and, and asking questions and, and getting yourself there? And so I do think there's a deficiency, and one of those deficiencies isn't in anything in the soil that we have to look at, but there's a bit of a, a deficiency of inspiration, I think, from our management perspective. And so uh, collective conversations, man, there's there's so much value in collective conversations, just like the one we're having right now. Uh, you know, thinking things of, in a different light or or mentioning things that are on your mind that, you know, those are the things that we have to address, right? Because sometimes we can't get around those things if they're not working on our farm. It's pretty tough to get around things. If if things aren't working in general, we have to turn the tide. And so um, looking for ways to to make that happen, I think collectively is a great way to to approach that. You know, the history of SFA is Farmer to Farmer Network. Uh, it was originally formed over 30 years ago to create an opportunity for exactly what Doug's talking about. And, and we have a lot of different things going on. We have different networking groups, different chapters, different field days, different workshops, different conferences, different meetings, and it's all designed to do that. And, 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 and it doesn't have to be through SFA. I mean, it's a, it's a vehicle to use and take advantage of those tools because they're already set up, but it can be as, as casual as just connecting with a couple like-minded neighbors you know, over breakfast or over coffee or whatever, you know, and sharing information. I know, you know, myself, that's, that's been a valuable thing, but that information exchange is very, very huge. And I know when we go out and work with farms, especially if there's a group of farms there that live in close, close proximity to each other who share similar vision and similar, similar goal to build soil biology, to build soil health, Wow, what a what a great learning opportunity to leverage. That can be another unfair advantage for that farm. And so we often, when we see those opportunities, we encourage them because they're so powerful. Well, we had some topics around cattle and things too, but I think that might need to be another conversation better than to and break it up into two. And I'm sure we could go a lot longer. Are there any other thoughts, I guess, around this topic? Kind of these things we've been talking about around soil health, input costs, more on the crop farming side? You know, this is the time of year to really be, I mean, everybody's thinking about getting ready for next year. Harvest is wrapping up. Some people maybe are looking at their books going, I got a little wiggle room here financially. I'm going to prepay on some things. Well, how about be prepaying on some cover crop seed? How about, you know, preparing to implement that next soil health principle on your farm and, and budgeting some of that in? If you're looking to prepay to avoid tax penalty. Now's a great time to do it. You know, get in, get in contact with one of us or another trusted advisor who can help you on this and, and start to look at what opportunities might be available for next year. If you need to prepay uh, some things down here, because it's been a good year for you and, and uh, continue to think about how you're going to implement that through the winter and where you want to do that and feel free to reach out to us and, and uh, kick some ideas around because, uh, we work with a lot of farms and we see a lot of things and we want to make sure uh, you take 
uh, the necessary steps to minimize risk as you move forward in this. And so those con- this is the time of year to have those conversations. One thing that's kind of in my mind here at the end of this, and I don't know, it just popped into my head, so it might not flow out as a, a logical thought or not, but <laughs> is, uh, you know, they've talked about beginning with the end in mind and think about, you know, you think about these changes up front, they're probably a little overwhelming. Like, why do I need to add cover crops? Why do I need to do this? Why do I need to do that? What I'm doing works well, especially right now, but it might be valuable for people to just stop for a minute and think, what does this mean? Or what could this mean? five years, 10 years, you know, hundred years down the road. I think Gabe Brown talks about a 400 year plan or something like that uh, for his farm. I mean, obviously they're not going to be like in 400 years, I want to be, you know, getting dinner at five, you know, you're not thinking specifically, you're thinking, you know, large context things, but I mean, what does this matter? What does this mean? What could another $150 an acre in cost savings mean to your family in 10 years? You know, I mean, a thousand acres, 150 grand, what that could mean the difference between, bringing home another kid and saying, sorry, you need to find another job. You know, that, that could be the difference. People talk a lot about how can we bring home the next generation? I mean, some major cost savings could be the way that we bring home the next generation, or maybe that could mean, you know, because you're not constantly rushing to keep up with tillage and stuff, you you can quit harvest a little early and you can go to the kids football game on Friday night. You don't have to feel so rushed because you don't have quite as many jobs to do because you've actually pulled back on some of the work you're doing in the field. Uh, You know, maybe that can mean you've always wanted to have more wildlife integration on your farm. If you're a pasture, kind of more of a livestock farm and by adding more diversity, leaving more residue, you have more deer, more wildlife in nature. I mean, think about what these practices today that now seem like a pain in the butt and a hassle and not really worth anything, what these can mean five, 10, 20 years down the road. And that might give you some motivation to keep going. So Jared, I'll give a specific one. And, you know, we have a lot of uh, farms that are interested in moving to no-till and for a whole host of reasons, not only from uh, implementing the minimizing disturbance aspect of the soil health principles, but as a labor and cost savings uh, mm-hmm. thing. Um, and we often ask the question when we're out on the farm, are your soils ready for no-till? And if you've got heavy soils and you don't have good soil aggregation out there, what steps do we need to take to get there? It's probably not going to happen overnight. It may be a multi-year process to move there. But if you can see the end goal in sight, like you said, uh, that that you want to move to no-till to free up more time to reduce costs, to help improve that bottom line, spend less time uh, planting in the spring or doing field work, uh, what do we need to do to get you, you know, get that farm there? And 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 we may have to just even identify, first of all, what's been the herbicide program so we can find out what covers to use to build that soil biology, you know, in order to move to that bigger goal of moving your farm to a no-till. And so that's just a specific example. There's many, many others, but I want to bring that up because that's something that can be very attainable in two to five years. Any other final thoughts? Yeah, I've had a few conversations this fall with farmers and, you know, it's been said many times that the easiest way to make a dollar is to save a dollar or to not spend it. And I had a conversation with a a gentleman at the Lake of the Woods workshop that Doug and I were at a couple weeks ago. And I feel like the thought of like reducing input costs was, it was really revolutionary. Um, And I think in his mind, he was trying to understand where the financial break-even point was on implementing soil health and, you know, what's the financial rewards and I kept going back to lowering input costs. I was like, well, what would it mean to you if you could, in two years, cut out 50% of your synthetics bill? 
you know, or some of this other stuff. And I think that was just a, so I think like from the economic and profitability perspective, soil health is like, I mean, we can see the benefits and not just from that. We don't want to focus just on the money side of things. There's so many other benefits of soil health, but you know, I think there's, there's a lot to be gained when you start, when you start thinking that way and encouraging people to start thinking that way as well. Awesome. Well, thanks guys for hopping on. We'll have to do this again sometime soon. Um, I think it was fun. I think it's cool to have more of a conversation and see where it goes. Didn't really know where it would go. And I think this worked out okay. So hopefully people uh, enjoy it as well. You, yeah. Thank you and, and appreciate it. And we'll, we'll have to get on again soon. Thanks guys. Dirt Rich is produced by the Sustainable Farming Association. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider supporting us by making a donation or becoming a member at sfa-mn.org. Thanks for listening.